Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. President Joe Biden came to Lower Manhattan this week to discuss strategies to curb gun violence in New York's five boroughs. Guns that are used to kill people in New York City, they aren't made in New York City. WBGO's John Kalish reports on the use of outdoor classrooms during the pandemic. These all-weather outdoor classrooms don't come with walls, but some schools have added plywood or fabric to partially block the wind. I'll chat with Prudential Financial's Sarah Kay about a new innovative approach to working with HBCUs. We want to really help amplify that, increase that, and ensure that HBCUs have the strong foundation. Kenneth Burns tries to solve the issue of whether there really is a central jersey. I feel like there's definitely, like, obviously a lot of back and forth on this. And we'll meet with the commissioner of the Premier Hockey Federation, Tyler Tuminia, as the Winter Olympic Games begin in Beijing. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. In a visit to New York City earlier this week, President Joe Biden announced a series of steps to try and tackle gun violence. He spoke at police headquarters where he acknowledged the high number of shootings nationwide and the six New York City officers who have been shot this year. Enough is enough because we know we can do things about this, but for the resistance we're getting from some sectors of the government. President Biden is urging local governments to use stimulus money to hire more officers. I want more cities and states to use some of the $350 billion we sent to them on the American Rescue Plan. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to give you the tools, the training, the funding. He also announced a new crackdown on gun traffickers. To help shut down what's referred to, as you all know, the iron pipeline that funnels guns from shops in states like Georgia, the crime scenes in Baltimore and Philadelphia and New York. Guns that are used to kill people in New York City, they aren't made in New York City. They aren't sold in New York City. President Biden is also providing more resources to go after those using ghost guns, which are made from at-home kits and are hard to trace. As schools grapple with the safety of kids learning in classrooms, some small towns in Vermont have been using outdoor classrooms designed specifically as a response to the coronavirus pandemic. WBGO's John Kalish reports that these structures are the brainchild of a family in the mountain town of Rochester, Vermont, and that word is spreading to neighboring states. Rochester is a small town in central Vermont, about 15 miles north of the ski resorts in Killington. Lindy Stetson serves as principal of both the Rochester Elementary School and another school in the nearby town of Stockbridge. Throughout COVID, Vermont truly embraced the concept of outdoors is the safest place to be. Initially, the schools in Rochester and Stockbridge bought tents to use as outdoor classrooms. I could just see that that wasn't going to be a solution in Vermont. Greg Ryan is a Rochester builder and musician. One of these tents, parts of it were breaking as we were putting it up. So I knew that these cheap store-bought tents weren't going to cut it. At $3,500 a piece, the tents weren't that cheap. They couldn't handle the wind or snow load, so Ryan started brainstorming. He's built two mobile gypsy homes known as Avardo, which has a skylight in its roof. Ryan incorporated one in the corrugated fiberglass roof for the outdoor classrooms. The classrooms are referred to as truss structures because they consist of a series of trusses, the frames used to support a roof. The Ryan Truss has a lumber frame and costs $8,500. 
I have shelves with rulers and paper clips and magnifying glasses and staplers. Teacher Amy Braun is keen on her school's 20 foot by 30 foot truss structure. I have a log that's got magic markers stuck into it for kids to be able to grab and use. There's backpacks hanging up with little notebooks and pencils for when we take walks. Braun says the structure looks just like a classroom, but it's outside. Having that mask on a kid's face all day long inside the building, it's going to take a toll. But being able to come out and face the sun and take the mask off and take deep breaths is very, very good for the kids. It keeps us warm. And then, like, we're also outside social distancing. Then we can just, like, chill. Fiona Rose Harrington is a sixth grader at Rochester Elementary School. I think that it would be nice if like all schools had this so then they could also be outside without their masks on. Greg Ryan and his two sons have built a total of nine truss structures for schools in central Vermont. These all-weather outdoor classrooms don't come with walls, but some schools have added plywood or fabric to partially block the wind. Depending on the temperature, kids can be outside for one to four hours a day, unless it's less than 10 degrees with the wind chill. The renowned Vermont architect Dave Sellers admires the Ryan Trust structures. This is an example of the Vermont creativity. You know, there's more patents per capita in Vermont than any other state. It's just a hotbed of ingenuity, and this is a good example of that. After an online ad appeared, the Ryans got some 40 calls from people in neighboring states interested in their trust structure. But the family can't keep up with demands, says Aiden Ryan, one of the two sons building and installing the outdoor classrooms. We are not super seriously pursuing more orders right now. That might happen in the future, and we're definitely interested in possibly selling some plans, possibly doing some workshops. The Ryans did sell plans and a hardware kit to someone in New Hampshire who's building a truss structure. The family is debating whether to give away the plans or sell them. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. Joining us on the WBGO Journal is Sarah Kay, the Vice President of Inclusive Solutions at Prudential Financial. In her current role, she leads strategic philanthropy and partnerships to help advance the company's commitment to inclusive economic growth and so much more. First of all, Sarah, great to see you again and welcome back to the WBGO Journal. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again, too. Fabulous news concerning Prudential establishing a new innovative approach to working with 
historically black college and universities to close the financial divide. Can you give us the details of, of this partnership? Now, Prudential's history with HBCUs goes way back, but this new initiative, talk about it. Yeah, we're excited to announce that we just recently approved over $3 million in grants to support HBCUs across a multi-pronged strategy. It's really looking at how do we help build the capacity of HBCUs as anchor institutions in their local communities? How do we help close some of the financial challenges that HBCU students are facing? And then how do we position Prudential as an employer of choice so that we can help build and increase the pipeline of talent that's coming into Prudential? And we're doing that for a couple of different reasons. I know you've mentioned that we've been working with HBCUs for quite some time. But we know that HBCUs disproportionately serve low-income students, and so over 75% of them are on Pell Grants. And we, but we also know that HBCUs only represent 3% of all colleges and universities in this country, but yet they produce over 20% of the graduates that are coming out. So they have a disproportionate impact on Black economic empowerment, on helping to position students for the next opportunity. And so we really see this partnership as multi-pronged, as I mentioned before, but really just thinking through and how do we best support HBCUs as they continue to impact their students and their families and communities. You know, financial opportunities are, are so challenging for students to begin with. But when we talk about the federal funding for HBCUs, it was nearly cut in half between 2003 and 2015, and endowments one-third the size of endowments at peer institutions. Nearly three in five students at HBCUs are from low-income families. They really do need the help. And as you mentioned, it's so important. The HBCUs do so much for so many. We're 100% seeing that as HBCU graduates are going into careers and earning income, that more than 50% of them are going into higher economic mobility positions and opportunities as a result of their education. And I think the, the education that then the training and the support that they receive on HBCU campuses and then the peer networks that are through their alumni networks and all of the individuals that are going on to greater opportunities post-college, we want to really help amplify that, increase that, and ensure that HBCUs have the strong foundation. And even though a lot of the federal funding has been cut, you know, we're going to hopefully see that continue to be re restored with new acts and legislation by Federal Congress, but really thinking about what are these unique engines that the, and the roles that they're playing in their local communities is incredibly important. They are anchor institutions similar as Prudential is an anchor institution in Newark, where they provide jobs. They're contributing to the economic recovery or revitalization of some of their communities, and so really making sure that they have strong endowments um, and looking through at how do we support the students best is what we're trying to do with this new initiative. You know what's exciting about this partnership. It, it, it's not just money, but it's it's physical time and energy. You know, places like Hampton University in Virginia have been working with Prudential for more than 20 years, and you're going to be participating in guest lectures at Hampton in this year and, and the next year and sharing firsthand experiences to offer some uh, critical insights when it comes to the financial industry. Can you talk a little bit about those lectures? So we're really excited to deepen our partnership with Hampton University. We've had the strongest pipeline of talent and alumni who are currently working at Prudential. And so we have a lot of excitement internally about how to give back and make sure that students understand the connection of what's happening in the classroom to potential careers, hopefully at Prudential, but of course in the wider financial services industry. So we're going to be talking about all the different types of roles that are available, particularly on the finance side and the investment side. 
and then also technology to help gauge people's interests. Because oftentimes we always hear what I previously mentioned is that disconnect between the classroom lessons and then uh, the career opportunities that follow afterwards. So we're really excited to bring our uh, you know, employees down there. We're also gonna help set up an investment fund with the Hampton Business School students so they can actually you know, manipulate and think about ways that money works in the market and how they can make the most sound decisions on that side. We also, our asset management business, PGIM, donated Bloomberg terminal licenses. The students can actively participate with those uh, types of opportunities. And so we're looking at not only the financial support, but how do we leverage our human capital and talent to be able to you know, show the opportunities and connect students to them. That leveraging that you're talking about, it, it comes at a time where, you know, many years ago, maybe college students didn't worry so much about finances, but now because of loans and they're overburdened with that. It's so important that they, first of all, know how to manage their own money, do the proper saving, but know how to invest and be a part of the, you know, the whole financial community. So what are you hearing from students at these, you know, HBCUs and what are they telling you about their biggest challenges right now? Well, it actually leads to a, a partnership that we created within this innovative initiative with Student Freedom Initiative. It's an organization that was started by Robert Smith of Vista Equity. And it was really looking at how do we give the potential and the resources available for students to really fulfill their um, and matriculate and graduate from college. And we know that there are many financial challenges that arise. As I mentioned, 75% of uh, HBCU students are on Pell Grants. But one of the most interesting things, enlightening things that I heard from a college president is they were asked, you know, how do you achieve high success rates in college graduation? And he said, I always have $500 in my drawer. Because students oftentimes come in for whether it's a car accident or a family illness or even just their laptop broke, there are these small expenses that end up laddering and increasing that ultimately prevent them from, you know, staying in class and graduating from college. And so they'll oftentimes drop out because of these small financial emergencies. And I think we've seen that increase ever fold during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so with SFI, we started what we're calling the HELPS program, which are going to provide students with micro grants for small emergencies. It could be small as $50, but as large as, you know, a four, four, $400, $500 to really help them through uh, some of these volatile periods of their time where it can impact their actual persistence in graduation. During our leadership team meeting this morning, I mentioned that I was going to be speaking with Sarah Kay from Prudential and everybody lit up and they were like, she's, in, she's incredible. You've been with Prudential now for quite some time. Why do you do what you do, Sarah? Well, I appreciate everyone's sentiments, <laughs> but, and I love everyone at the WVDO team as well, too, for the work that you all do. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I've stayed with Prudential for so long is who Prudential is as a company. I mean, I go back to the founding story that John Dryden, who founded Prudential, created the company because he saw a problem with working class families not being able to have the financial means to bury their loved ones. And our first product was barrel insurance for working class families, and it was as little as three to five cents a week. So he saw a social problem, created a business solution, and created what we are today, and we're now almost 150 years years old. And so I think that's incredibly important to who the company is. Uh, you know, after the civil unrest that happened in late 1960s, Prudential chose to stay in Newark and not only stayed, but doubled, tripled down 
And so the, the ethos of the company is really thinking about how to be a good corporate citizen, how do you merge the social impact with the business returns, and so that we're at the forefront of solutions that are trying to solve these societal issues. And that's the reason why I've stayed for so long, because uh, it has been almost a, a decade now that I've been with the company, but also the ways that Prudential continues to think about how are we helping to drive the solutions around racial equity? How do we think about the closing the wealth, uh, the wealth gap and the financial divide? that exists still in this country. You know, part of your title is inclusive solutions, right? Inclusive is a, is a huge word these days, right? We hear so, so much about it. Um, my daughter graduated, uh, you know, in inclusive ed. So it's important that, uh, that major companies like Prudential keep that in mind. Now, you are vice president of inclusive solutions. Just talk a little bit more about your role and how this has expanded, and, and how has it been through the pandemic? It's a great question. You know, when I first started with the company, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you know, philanthropy, I started within the philanthropic organization, and it used to be a little bit of a separate entity from the company. Of course, we are part of all Prudential, but uh, it was seen more as a charitable social impact um, role. And what I've seen over the last decade is our philanthropic work and our mentality about thinking about social impact is now being embedded in business strategy and business groups and myself are working together to think about what are the next generation financial solutions, what can we do to help close the wealth gap. Um, and so it's a much more stronger integration of thinking about uh, social impact and business returns, which many people call shared value. Um, and so I think that's really important as we think about, you know, how corporations are moving into the future about you can't just have, you can't just focus on one population or one economic class, but you really have to think about rising up all boats for this entire country to be a thriving community. Um, so it's really important that we work in this mentality and we think about the ways that not only our philanthropic dollars can do good, but also leveraging all of the assets and capabilities that exist throughout the company, whether it be around our products or services or talent and being able to deploy them in the right manner. Sarah, as a young child, I always heard a piece of the rock because uh, as, as you uh, now know that uh, my father worked for Prudential for 35 years. Uh, he passed away in 2020, but uh, Prudential Insurance and Prudential you know, Financial, certainly a, a part of the uh, Doyle family. And so it's, it's always near and dear to talk to people like Sarah Kay and Harold Banks and everybody at Prudential. Thanks for staying in Newark and congratulations on this new partnership, which the uh, HBCUs are extremely excited about. Thank you so much for having us again. What's the deal with Central Jersey? Some question its very existence as separate from South Jersey, while others are offended that's even a question. WBGO's Kenneth Burns takes a closer look. Let's start with the premise that yes, Central Jersey does exist. Besides the fact that my wife, the awesome Mrs. Burns, tells me so, there's even more proof to it. We'll get back to that in a moment. But first, meet Paul Hinges, born in Voorhees, raised in Winona, He's very much a South Jersey native, and he got in touch with us to ask, where is the border between his home region and Central Jersey? I feel like there's definitely, like, obviously a lot of back and forth on this. Hinges says it's one of those things he knows is there, but he can't quite put his finger on it. For people from South Jersey, there's definitely a spot where people don't think that's at all part of South Jersey, but from people I've met from North Jersey, they think that area is South Jersey. That got me wondering. Do South, Central, and North Jersey just exist in our hearts, or is there an actual border between the regions? 
First, I reached out to Governor Phil Murphy's office. The governor tweeted a couple of years ago, there's state law that actually defines all three regions. Turns out, there are several state laws. For example, a public utility statute defines Central Jersey as Hunterdon, Mercer, Middlesex, Monmouth, and Somerset counties. Under a highway statute, Ocean County is also included in the Central region. A map made by Murphy's office says Ocean and Union counties are both Central debatable. To get some historical perspective, I reached out to Maxine N. Lurie, and I'm actually um, an emerita professor of history from Seton Hall University. Dr. Lurie's edited several books on New Jersey history, including an atlas. She says at one point, we weren't one New Jersey family. If you go back to the 17th century, there's two New Jerseys. There's an East Jersey and a West Jersey. Imagine a line from Little Egg Harbor in Ocean County up to Sussex County in the northwestern part of the state. The dividing line is at an angle. So east-west, but if you look at it on a map and think north-south, none of it's straight. But that was the big division. For about 25 years, there was a lot of infighting, including over the dividing line between the two provinces. By 1702, the proprietors of East and West Jersey turned things back over to the British, and it became one colony. So here we are, 320 years later. Now we know the history, we know what state law says, but what do the people say? I headed to Bordentown in Burlington County, just inside the official South Jersey border, to see which region people would claim. Are you in Central Jersey or South Jersey? This is Central Jersey. Would you say you're in South Jersey or Central Jersey? Central Jersey. The best way for me to do that and answer that question would be to get a map of New Jersey. Uh, hold on, hold on. First I have to Google it. You would go around here and around here, a visible line right around here and right around here. And this would be Central. This is the edge, baby. That's Rose Kohlenhofer. She lived in Sayreville before moving to Bordentown, which she says is in South Jersey. I came from Middlesex County. That's Central Jersey. This is not Central Jersey. Marletta Welks, meanwhile, says this area is in Central Jersey, which she defined in true Garden State fashion. Oh, I'd say Central Jersey is from exit 7 to exit 9. For others, what separates Central and South Jersey is more about where you'd be more likely to find a Wawa or a Quick Check or to find people who root for the Eagles or the Giants. For Trenton resident Jacqueline West, South Jersey is more spaced out with its many acres of farmland. As for Central Jersey, That's where the action is. That's where everybody goes and does, you know, whatever they need to do. Sasha Florenzo just moved to New Jersey two weeks ago from Florida. She technically lives in South Jersey, but she has a different question about the Garden State entirely. What are these jug handle things and no left turns? Like the first day we were up here, we my husband kept getting, everybody kept beeping at him because we were trying to turn left. We didn't know. That's a debate for a different day. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns, somewhere between South and Central Jersey. The Winter Olympic Games are underway in Beijing. In fact, the U.S. women's hockey team already has a win. Women's hockey continues to grow, and one of the reasons the Premier Hockey Federation is expanding and raising salary caps is Commissioner Tyler Tominia. Tominia was a guest this week on my WBGO Studios podcast, Sports Jam. A big infusion of money, $25 million. Tell us about this and how it's going to impact this Women's Hockey League. Yeah, so when I kind of when I took over 18 months ago, um, there was a lot of work that we had to do um, in order to take this league to the next level. 
Um, and that started with getting new owners. Um, and we had to do that rather quickly. Uh, it's because of the Board of Governors um, that we were, were able to sit here today. It's been many, many, many discussions, as you can imagine, Doug, over the last couple months, right? Um, about you know the, where we're going to head, where we're like to head in the next three to five years. And as we forecast it out, um, I'm, I'm very pleased to announce uh, the backing and trust of the Board of Governors um, with this capital infusion um, directly going right to uh, the players. So they have announced um, $25 million over the next three years. Seven and a half of that will be allocated to season eight, which will start um, in October, um, directly relating to the player salary, bringing that salary cap to 750000 Now, when I started here, the salary cap was one hundred and fifty. dollars uh, We had a two-week season in season six because of the covid um, I, I wanted to jump from baseball to women's hockey, right, uh, for the leadership challenge. But this was unlike any kind of thing I could script out uh, as far as the leadership challenge was concerned going into a pandemic, right? Like leadership is not trained in pandemic mm-hmm. um, uh, style of running a league. So we, um, we had this two-week season. We landed a landmark sponsorship deal with Discover. And because of Discover's landmark sponsorship deal out of season six, we were able to bring that salary cap from one fifty to three hundred fifty thousand per team, which was epic at the time. That's only a couple months ago we announced that. The Board of Governors felt very passionate on on some of our sponsorship tracking, how we're tracking there, our media deal with ESPN Plus, TSN being a huge partner in us, putting us on linear a couple of times as well this this season. The media component, the sponsorship partnerships, and the way that, you know, we're into an Olympic year here, the way that we're tracking coming into women's hockey and it being a very attractive sport, they felt very passionate. Um, there was not a lot of convincing here, Doug, um, that to get to a livable wage sooner rather than later would benefit the landscape of women's hockey altogether. So here we are at 750. I could tell you the year after, I would imagine that's going to grow um, with a base salary of 37.5 as a minimum. Um, it's it's a great time to be an athlete here in the PHF. Um, and again, just a starting point, right? Like these female athletes, these athletes here at the PHF really deserve everything that they're trying to do. They they really take personal ownership into growing this game. And so I'm thrilled that the owners felt just as passionate about growing it as well. We are underway here at Northtown Center in Buffalo. Josh Toll and former Olympian Lindsey Fry with you as this is played around the boards and up to Audra Morrison. Morrison squeezed on the near side. And now here a chance for Kepler. Kepler, of course, getting her first career PHF goal in last night's loss. I was so excited to hear about this infusion because as you can probably tell from behind me, I had the Lamaru twins on Sports Jam along with Hillary Knight as well and uh, winning the gold medal. And they talked about it at the time, having this ability to play this sport just like the men and not getting the money for it. So what a great thing now to know that the salaries are going up and really going up exponentially because of people like you and the Board of Governors. So this is, this is really great news because I love the sport of, of women's hockey uh, following them and uh, this upcoming Olympics, it's it's just wonderful. First of all, I can't skate a lick, Tyler. So, <laughs> so I appreciate anybody who can play the game at a high level. And certainly the Premier Hockey Federation has the best to offer. There's also an expansion. You mentioned 18s. 
that's an expansion of two. Tell us about the teams. Yeah, so um, just a strategic overview. We definitely would love to see the federation grow to a point where, you know, you have almost across the states domestically within Canada and the United States um, to have a little bit more of a, of a cup presence, meaning between the West and East Coast Division, right, or the North and South. Um, I would love for it to grow into the non-traditional hockey markets. I feel um, taking off of a little bit of my minor league baseball model, where we're in non-traditional baseball markets, there's a lot of room to grow there for the sports entertainment dollar. But going into season eight, um, you'll, you're going to see Montreal be, become part of our family. Um, and the Board of Governors is in uh, that ownership group is working diligently. Uh, they're supposed to happen this season, uh, but because of COVID um, and trying to get that up and running, it's definitely season eight. Um, and then you'll also see um, on the state side domestically here, another expansion team, which I'd love to talk about, um, but I can't. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that growth is really important, especially coming um, out of the Olympics and then looking at the, um, the roster composition of, of athletes coming out of um, college and the international market, which is huge for us. We've created the international draft this year, the first time ever, you know, drawing from a different um, market outside of the traditional Canadian and domestic um, markets. And then just to grow the game and be able to have more roster spots, which is imperative, um, as well as uh, more locations for athletes to be able to go to, um, I think is just going to be wildly successful for season eight. Um, I'm really excited to, you know, I, I'm really excited, Doug, to finish season seven. Don't get me wrong, but if we can just kind of like <laughs> get going into season eight, definitely excited about that. You can hear the entire conversation with Tyler Tamenia at wbgo.org slash studios. Refined Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 6.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Portraits in Blue is up next on WBGO and WBGO.org.